Well, welcome back to the Legend of Zelda Lorecast. I'm your host, Aaron, and joining me is my fellow host, Ariel. Hello. And today, we're going to be talking about the wars that plagued Hyrule. Before we dive in, though, I want to say a huge, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, We had some computer issues with last week's episode. So this week, you're going to get two for the price of one. So we're going to drop episode four as soon as we're done recording it. And you're still going to get your Friday release for episode five. So I hope that makes up for it. With that being said, let's go ahead and dive in. As we know, there are five major wars that basically paved the way for Hyrule. Now, there's small scale altercations or battles that take place, such as, you know, you know, happens at right before Minish and, you know, Four Swords. There's, there's, there's tons of small battles, but those are usually fixed with the Hero of Time's influence. We're talking wars that happened over decades, sometimes eons. You know, these are big scale wars that took large casualties. So we're just going to go ahead and dive right into this because there's a lot of information to cover. So the very first war, of course, that took place was the ancient war or the ancient battle. Now, this is between demise and the forces of the goddess Hylia or the surface dwellers. So we don't really have a definitive timeline for this, but it had to have taken place for a very long period of time. Essentially in this battle, Demise tried to take over the world with his evil powers and evil influence, but Hylia gathered massive amounts of surface dwelling tribes to combat Demise, and when they began to be beaten back, that is when the goddess Hylia decided to thrust the surviving humans or Hylians up into the sky using her powers and the power of the Skyward Sword. And then, because she was fatally wounded, she chose to reincarnate herself as a Hylian, and that way she could also use the Triforce in the future as her reincarnated self to basically get rid of Demise. Then the events of Skyward Sword happen, which we'll cover later, so we won't spoil it until we get there. Uh, But then Demise was defeated. The reason we're talking about this is because the war wasn't just the Hillians. We're talking the Sheikah, the Kikwi, the Magma, the Perella, the ancient robots, all of these ancient races to include the Goron, they all participated with the Hillians in this ancient battle. So it is a large scale war. When they say surface dwellers, they mean all the surface dwellers fought this war. No, I just want to touch back on something real quick. When you had said that she first decided to reincarnate herself, mm-hmm. that's not what she first did. Oh, no, it isn't, is it? No. No, okay. The first thing she did was she created the sword spirit, Fi. Yes, yes. And yeah. she bound it to the goddess sword that's in the statue of the goddess. Yes. Fi was to assist her chosen hero on his journey. Yeah, which so. we which we did touch on the chosen hero and the firm belief that the chosen hero was chosen only after she was reincarnated. Yeah. Which is a pretty cool concept when you think about it. 
since we're bringing up Fi, we also need to bring up the fact that before she reincarnated herself, she also appointed the three dragons to guard over certain domains, split the song that would, you know, open the path to the Triforce. And she also appointed Levias as the Sky Guardian. So she did a lot before she died. As she did that, so to protect her people. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much it for the ancient war or ancient battle, which brings us to none other than the interloper war. Now, this war was an interesting one. Now, this war takes place after the events of Skyward Sword, but right before the Minish Cap. So this war was fought between none other than Hillians. And what they were fighting over was who should control the sacred realm. Now, shortly after everything happened with Skyward Sword events, people began to recognize the fact that the Sacred Realm existed. When people found out, of course, there were challenges with the royal family on who should control the supreme power that was held within the Sacred Realm. During this war, Helians had access to dark magic and they became known only as the interlopers these interlopers attempted to establish command and control over the sacred realm and establish their own power using fused shadows eventually what came to pass was the golden goddesses ordered the light spirits to intervene and the light spirits sealed away the great magic in everybody who had mastered it. So all those Hillians and even potentially some Sheikah who had mastered this dark magic became sealed away. And what they were sealed away in was none other than the mirror of twilight. Now this event also led to the establishment of another race, which is the Twili or Twili. The people that were sealed away there began to become fused and twisted by the twilight and eventually became extremely peaceful. So I'm going to read you a little blurb from the Legend of Zelda Cyclopedia, and it is on the origins of the Twilight Realm and the Twili. Though they lost their most powerful abilities, the Twili still possess some magical power, and the strongest of them can even teleport. They built a leadership structure around those with the strongest magical abilities. Until Ganondorf's interference in the Twilight Princess, they lived in a relatively peaceful age. So, even though they were condemned to the Twilight Realm, they managed to find peace in the Twilight that is. So, it wasn't an all-out bad ending, but it still was a massive war, and... To end it all, shortly after the goddesses ordered the light spirits to seal the Hillians away, Rauru sealed the entrance to the sacred realm in the Temple of Time. So with that war out of the way, we get to one of the most resident wars and impactful wars of Hyrule history, the Hyrulean Civil War. Now, the Hyrulean Civil War was fought between two primary peoples, the Gerudos 
and the Hillians. Now, the Hillians did have people fighting on their side. They had the Zora, which the reason they fought along the side with the Hillians is because they're honor bound to the royal family. We know that in the previous episode we discussed. The Gorons also potentially participated, but I don't, you know, we can safely assume that they probably didn't participate directly on the front lines. Since again, they're more reserved people. But nonetheless, they are honor bound and courageous. So they probably did send a couple troops or a couple, you know, amounts of troops to the front lines to help in the aid of the battle because the Gerudos, when they were invading, they were not invading just the Hyrulean Castle. You have to keep in mind, they were, it was war all across the land. They wanted anything and everything they can get their hands on. So the Gorons probably left many a troops back to protect the Death Mountain domain. And the next and final tribe that aided directly in battle were the Sheikah. Now, as we talked about in the previous episode with the Sheikah, we know exactly what they did. They did anything and everything they must in the pursuit of protecting the royal family and its lineage. This is really where our Shadow Temple took shape and, you know, truly got its usage for the torture, for the information extraction, for prisoner captivity, you know, you name it, they did it. If it was dark, they did it in the Shadow Temple away from the Herulean royal family because the royal family did not want to know what they were doing. And this is where the Sheikah tribe really took its dark turn. So a lot of questions arise of how in the world did the Gerudo stand a chance against this massive armada because even if you know the Gerudo because even if the Gorons didn't aid you know directly in the front lines that's still a lot of you know races to fight against well it's simply put their archer capabilities it was said a long time ago in history that archers on horseback were equivalent to atomic bombs of today one good archer on horseback could level an army. And that's exactly what the Gerudo pride themselves upon. Not only they're experts in combat, but they're experts in horse archery and horse riding in general. So you have to think on top of being extremely good fighters and extremely good at horseback archery, they're also really good at stealth. So they could best the Sheikah in addition to this. So this war assumably went on for a long period of time. And eventually it ended, quote unquote, with Ganondorf pledging loyalty to the royal family. Now we know, and we'll get into it deeper when we get to Ocarina of Time, that it was all just a ruse to get what he really wanted out of all of this. Once we've established all of this, the real question is, why did the Gerudos do this? And again, that was another answer, another question we answered in a previous episode of they wanted to be, they wanted resources. They wanted to be acknowledged. They wanted to be just as important and established as the rest of the races in Hyrule. And 
they had leaders throughout time during this war that pushed them for that. You know, we had the Twin Rova sisters. We had Ganondorf. These three entities were enough to push the Gerudo tribe to thrust themselves out there and try to take land masses back. So once the war ended, that gave us a temporary time of peace. And when I say temporary, I mean very temporary because it wasn't shortly thereafter that Ganondorf enacted his plan to begin to cause absolute chaos. You know, sealing off the Goron's food sources, attempting to essentially assassinate the Zora's god, and, you know, plaguing the Kokiri Force's main source of magic, which is the Deku Tree. Uh, Speaking about the Deku Tree, I think it was really, really sad that the reason that Link's mom took him to the Deku Tree was because she was injured in this war. And it was just sad. Any able-bodied person was put into this war. Mm-hmm. And she died. Yeah, it is terribly sad what happened to Link's mother. And, you know, Link's, Link's story throughout the ages is just a sad one. You know... One of the most important things I want to bring up, and I'm glad you brought up his mother, was the after results. And nobody really focused on those when we played Ocarina at time, but the populations of each civilization are extremely dwindled. And yeah, you can accustom that to, you know, well, nobody wants to program an entire city full of people and, you know, it's a lot of money and a lot of work. Yeah, you can accustom that. But I love how Nintendo incorporated that into the story because this war waged on so long and because it took so many casualties from all of these different civilizations even after the unification of the entire realm of Hyrule under one banner of the royal family the losses were still felt you know the Gorons were down in numbers the Zora were down in numbers the Hyrulean family were down in numbers. The one thing I want to point out here, though, is that the Sheikah were basically non-existent. And that is because it is written in history that the Sheikah tribe only has enough members as is needed to defend the royal family and the goddess Hylia. And I think that's incredibly amazing when you think about it because that's essentially the world recognizing we don't need a lot of the Sheikah right now. We just need a few. I mean, I really like the Sheikah. So So that is pretty much it for the Hyrulean War. And we're not going to go into super heavy detail with any of these wars until we get into areas of the games or even temples referencing the shadow temple here because I don't want to give away too many spoilers too soon because the legend of Zelda lore is very confusing yeah so we're just starting off small Mm -hmm. so we can you all can get the feel of what's going on before we deep dive into everything oh yeah So with that being said, I think it's time for us to take a mid-break.
Get. Yeah. Get. Well, here we are in the middle of the show. <laughs> so, first off, I want to read some of our recent reviews on Apple iTunes, and I'm super stoked for these. So, we have from Courier7, amazing podcast, five stars. One of my all-time favorite series, this podcast does a very good job of covering the lore and the characters of this series. I'm so glad we do. <laughs> We're trying really hard. Uh, the next one we have is Love and the Lore from Kim RN30. Thanks for taking the time to bring the knowledge to us. I enjoyed the first episode and I'm looking forward to learning more. LOZ has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. Keep it up. We will. <laughs> And the last one, Lore is awesome. Five stars. Lo, this is from LOZBTW. This is the best podcast ever. Thank you for the amazing concert. Well, we didn't do the concert. That was our friends at STL Ocarina, and it was a fantastic concert. Um, if you get a chance, go check them out. Uh, you can check out their concerts on YouTube. They do them all the time. We post up as many as we can on our Twitter feeds. And they're, they're absolutely lovely people and they create fantastic ocarinas. They're really good quality too. But other than that, I want to say a huge thank you for all these wonderful reviews. Yes, thank you. I am so glad we got some fantastic reviews and I'm so glad everyone's so pleased with the series. And yes, we are going to keep it up. We're going to keep going. I'm so sorry about the delays we had for our fourth episode. We... We've worked out the kinks and shouldn't happen again. Fingers crossed. Um, but thanks for sticking around. Thanks for loving the show. And, you know, thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I I cannot thank everyone enough. This really means a lot. You know, the LOC series is extremely important to me. And yeah, I just... It's very humbling. Agreed. <laughs> But uh, with all that being said, working out the kinks in our Patreon right now, working on a few more tiers, and that will be up soon. So I want to get it up before the end of this month because we are going to have a tier where you can join us at the end of the month to talk L-O-Z. And I'm excited for that. But all that being said, let's get to my favorite part, the little news snippets we bring. Well, I don't have news snippets, but I oh. do have merch. I love merch. And this is a Legend of Zelda Link versus Dark Link canvas art. Ooh. And it's pretty awesome. So you can get this at Canvas X. And it runs for $54.95. But you can get it, and this is for the large size. So you can get it in small, medium, large, and extra large. So the prices vary on that. Mm. And you can get it unframed or stretched. Now, personally, I like it stretched because, you know, you get that canvas feel. Mm -hmm. But you can get just the canvas print. And... And guess what? Free shipping worldwide, which Ooh, is wonderful. That's I what everyone wants to hear. Love free shipping. So anyways, yeah, it's really cool. I'll put the link in the show notes and on Discord. 
and I will say it looks really cool. And it's multiple canvases put together. It's uh, it's kind of like in the shape of a pyramid when they're all put together. Kind of, yeah. But it's extremely cool. I want one to hang in the studio. <laughs> so I don't have any news either. You know, it's been kind of silent in the realm of LOZ lately. We just got the Majora's Mask uh, drop on the Nintendo Switch, which is super exciting. And if you haven't played Majora's Mask yet, go play it. It's a fantastic game. My personal favorite in the LOZ series. Uh, yeah, go run out and play it. But I did bring merch in lieu of news as well. And my merch, you can get it GameStop. And it is the Dark Horse Comics Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask Collector's Edition Mask. And it is a 14-inch statue. Now, this thing runs $89.99, and it is cool. It lights up, the base lights up, the eyes light up, and it's it's just gnarly looking. If you are a Majora's Mask fan like myself, this is definitely a must-have for you. And, of course, you know, with you buy things over 35 bucks at GameStop, it's free shipping, too. Everyone loves free shipping. Everyone loves free shipping. <laughs> So that's all the stuff we have in LOZ news for the mid show. Um, let's get back to our wars, starting with none other than the imprisoning war. <laughs> and we're back and we're ready to talk about the imprisoning war. So this war is a huge war as well. So to start it off, we have to recognize the fact that this is where the timeline branches. In this timeline, where the war does take place is after the fall of the hero and the Ocarina of Time. Now, this is assuming you as the hero, Link, fall in battle against Ganondorf at his castle. So before we get into the details of the imprisoning war, I'm going to flip it over to Ariel to discuss some inconsistencies uh, between the Ocarina of Time and the Super Nintendo Link to the Past. So I leave it to you, Ariel. So though the Imprisoning War is explained to be the result of Link being defeated by Ganondorf in Ocarina of Time, mm -hmm. uh, there are several plot holes that would come into question because of this. So I was going to cover... Aside from the events of Ocarina of Time, there are several other contradictions, such as the king's commanding of the seven wise men in the legends of the Imprisoning War and his presumed death in Ocarina of Time following Ganondorf's assault on Hyrule Castle. The seven wise men being all elderly male Hylians, whereas in Ocarina of Time, only two of the seven sages are male and Raru is the only one of the two who matches the A Link to the Past description. And Ganon being defeated despite obtaining the full Triforce, which grants its wielder omnipotent powers. The exact reasons for these supposed errors are of course not known, leaving us to speculate on the differences between the games. I just want to kind of briefly touch on one theory about the wise men so 
The seven maidens of A Link to the Past are supposedly the descendants of the seven sages of Ocarina of Time. And yet, while the seven sages are of different races, the maidens all appear to be human. While there are many different plot points between the two tellings of the events, the idea that the story was lost over time and reduced to a legend indicates inconsistencies by default. Mm-hmm. Many events chronicled through legend that take place in earlier Zelda games feature inconsistencies as well. So it just kind of... Well, because they're legends, they might have been mistold. Basically, that's what this is saying. Yeah. That's the easy way out. Nintendo often has taken the easy way out when there's plot holes in their games. Uh, As witnessed in Breath of the Wild, uh, it's all legend. It's told through history. Some things are misconstrued. Breath of the Wild. You know, it's quite often. I think we should definitely dive into theories of all these different things, Mm. but at a later date, of course. But I would definitely love to explore the various amounts of theories explaining all these inconsistencies. Oh, yeah. We will definitely be visiting those. So, according to the Legend of Zelda Encyclopedia, this is what actually happened. After the hero's defeat, Ganondorf steals the Triforce from Zelda and Link, which we already discussed. After this, he transforms into the Dark Beast Ganon. Then, the Seven Sages, including Princess Zelda, seal the unified Triforce and Ganon in the Sacred Realm. While in the Sacred Realm, Ganon corrupts it. And fighting ensues in the Sacred Realm. Then the Seven Sages seal the entrance to the Sacred Realm with Ganon in it. So, essentially, at this time, it's safe to assume Ganon has broken out of the Sacred Realm or is attempting to break out of the Sacred Realm. Once this happens, the Seven Sages have no choice but to perma-seal both the Sacred Realm and Ganon in it. After that, Ganon transforms the Sacred Realm fully into the Dark World. And at this point, he's wished to become the king of the world. Now, when he makes this wish, it is said that it is heard across the world. It is so loud and so powerful that it is heard everywhere. Now, once they figure this out, that's where the link to the past events take place. The inconsistencies, however, are originally... Ganon did not have the Triforce. In the original Link to the Past storyline, the original Imprisoning War, which is the non-canon one now, presumably, Ganon fought his way to the Sacred Realm. Once getting there, eliminated all of his own followers to make sure that he managed to get the Triforce uncontested. And then he wished to be the king of the world. Upon that wish, he began to convert the sacred realm into an exact copy of Hyrule, except twisted and corrupted. From there, the Triforce began screaming out to 
Hyruleans that had greedy hearts to coerce them into stepping foot in this dark world. And then it would turn them into twisted monsters. And the way it would do this is it would turn Hyruleans or anybody for that matter that walked into the sacred realm into a twisted version of what's in their heart. Which then would lead to the events that happened in Link to the Past. So there's big inconsistencies just right there. So luckily for us, like I said, the encyclopedia cleared a lot of things up for us. What actually happens is the seven sages seal him away and then he attempts to break out and that leads us to the war and the twisting of the world and then the events of Link to the Past. So that's pretty much it on the imprisoning war. It's pretty straightforward. Ganon was a jerk, or Ganondorf was a jerk, and then turned into Beast Ganon. The interesting thing is, regardless of what happens in any of the timelines, this leads us to the final war in the Legend of Zelda timeline and the most detrimental war, the Calamity. Now, I say final because technically there are six wars because the calamity happens twice first time it happens the ancient people are still in existence and these are the people that created all the machines and the guardians and pretty much any technology that is in Hyrule During this time, they have them there ready to use. You know, the ancient people know how to utilize these things. And the calamity, which is Ganon, arrives. There were four selected champions from each race to pilot the divine beasts. Now, these divine beasts are basically large animals. We have the bird, the elephant, the camel, and the lizard. And they have their own special names, and we will get to them when we get to Breath of the Wild. But during this time, the four beasts were utilized to subdue Calamity Ganon, and the hero and the princess sealed Calamity Ganon away. Now, when this happens a second time, we don't have our ancient people. We don't have anybody for that matter with a whole lot of knowledge on the ancient technologies which leads to a huge disadvantage when the calamity comes back because the calamity has knowledge of the ancient technologies and utilizes it against the people of Hyrule he takes over the guardians he sends his own smaller calamities to take over all of the champions divine beasts he just takes everything which leads to him essentially destroying Hyrule and and when this happens it results in the fall of the hero which leads us to the events of Breath of the Wild the hero sleeps for a hundred years and during this time Princess Zelda has to keep the Calamity at bay. Can you imagine for a hundred years having to keep this omnipotent, 
all-powerful, chaotic force at bay. This is when she really steps in and shines. Oh, yeah. We've had Zelda shine momentarily throughout the series, you know, as Sheik and, you know, with the the hero, the, the, the bow of light, you know, we've had her shine through in small occasions. But like you said, Ariel, this is the first time where Zelda really steps up to the plate and shows us what she's got. And she's got a lot. Yeah, I like that they brought in this strong female character because, to be honest, you don't get a lot of that in games. You really don't. It's all male-based. Mm-hmm. So as a woman, I enjoy seeing that. Definitely. I Even as a man, you get tired of seeing the men are always the hero trope, you know? It, it gets tiresome after a while and the Breath of the Wild really the calamity itself really breathed life back into the Legend of Zelda series especially allowing Zelda to truly shine and show how powerful in the realm of magic she really is so after the events of Breath of the Wild the calamity is presumed destroyed. And this is what truly ends the war. This game, Breath of the Wild, is truly pivotal in a lot of ways. But this is the first time that a war has expanded into our game setting. Any other time, the war has kind of hit a lull. In the war with Demise, it hits a lull because Demise gets sealed away. So we have time. The Interloper War, when it happens, it's it's already done by the time Minish Cap takes place. So it's already taken care of. And it's not referenced again until Twilight Princess. And even with, you know, the Link to the Past, the wars pretty much are almost won. There's not really much you can do except seal Ganon away. You know, he's pretty much taken power over the entire realm for the most part. So it's pretty much over. This this moment, the calamity, is truly the only time where we take take a huge stand as basically the on, the army. You know, it's just us against the calamity and its dark forces. And you can truly see that impact throughout the world of Breath of the Wild because this is the first time we have a huge Sheikah population in a game and it's because we reference back to what I mentioned when we were talking about the Ocarina of Time earlier it's because the Sheikah appear when they're most needed and we have an entire village of Sheikah now so they're desperately needed even the Zora domain they've taken a huge hit to their population all over again the Gorons have taken a huge hit to their population all over again you know the the Hillians they're scattered throughout the entire domain that is Hyrule you can see the impact of this war throughout so it's it, it's incredible you know this is one of the reasons why Breath of the Wild is one of my top Legend of Zelda games so with that being said that's pretty much all the wars I do want to say a little tidbit 
before we leave. So I want to state that the survival of Calamity Ganon is uncertain. Exactly. Yeah, because Link did defeat the monster at the end of the game, Mm -hmm. but a difference in translation leaves the question open. So in the English dialogue, Zelda tells Link that Ganon has given up on reincarnating in exchange for power when he turns into his dark beast form. But in the original Japanese, she says the opposite. There she says Ganon forced the transformation because he refuses to give up on reincarnating. So the Calamity may return again. Which we know is going to happen because of the trailer that dropped for Breath of the Wild 2 and we see the Calamity infecting the corpse of Ganondorf. What we can assume is the corpse of Ganondorf. So I'm excited to see what the next big war brings. Oh, yeah. So that's pretty much it for our pave the way wars of Hyrule. And in the next episode, I think we're going to cover some locations of interest. Location, location, location. (laughs) So until next time, thank you all for listening and tune in this Friday. Yeah. Thank you all for listening to the Legend of Zelda Lorecast tonight. We hope you enjoyed yourselves. If you did, tell a friend, leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can chat with us all things Legend of Zelda on the Robots Radio Discord. Or you can get hold of us on our Twitter at LOZ Lorecast. Intro and outro are done by Bentonal Landscape. Links are in the show notes below. Till next time, dear listener, it's dangerous to go alone. Take this.